You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to us tonight to calm our hearts, to open our ears, to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see ourselves as we are, but above all, who you are in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Continuing through Matthew's Gospel, we arrive at chapter 18, when the disciples begin a conversation over who is the greatest. A turning point has happened in the gospel. We look back to chapter 16 when Peter confesses Jesus at the Christ as the Christ at Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, now Jesus has revealed himself uh, as he is, and so it's no wonder after talking about who he is and what he's come to do that the disciples would begin to question Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I want to be the greatest, don't you? I don't want to be at the end of the line. I mean, no worse feeling in the world. Fifth grade dodgeball. Lord, just don't let me get picked last. Because being picked last means something. You're a loser. And I found myself on the short end of that sick. I've been of the same build and same wardrobe since fifth grade. Which benefits me now, but not so much then. Jesus says, I'll tell you who the greatest is. And he calls a child and he puts him in front of the rest of them and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you want to have a relationship with the living God, you have to be like a child. Jesus uses the language here to turn, meaning this is not our natural disposition. In fact, all of us have been told our entire lives to grow up. Don't act like a child. And even as children, we long to be adults. My kids love dressing up in what they call big kids' clothing. They love getting their nails done. They love putting on makeup. They like to think of themselves as old, as adults. The worst thing you can say to them is, you're little. I mean, they are. They're five, seven, and nine. And yet, by their reckoning, they're not. The other thing that Jesus is dealing with here, too, is that in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' day, Children were to be seen and not heard. To be told you need to become like a child is not just foolishness, it's backwards. Children were not the treasures uh, that we see them as today. Uh, they were a nuisance. If they were boys, all the better, because they could grow up and they could support the family. If they were women, hopefully they would marry into a wealthy family, because otherwise they were nothing but a burden. There were no such things as play dates. And I didn't even have play... Like, you got to schedule playtime. I thought that came naturally, but there was nothing that would... And right now, my entire schedule is dictated by my children. It's ridiculous. 
That never would have happened in the ancient Near East. Never. Children were to be seen and not heard. And so what does Jesus mean that if you want to enter into a relationship with the living God, you must be like a little child? What is it about children that Jesus says you have to be like in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, I used to think that what Jesus meant is what Sarah McLaughlin sung about. We're born innocent. And then I had children. And there's never a greater and more ample uh, image of sin than a child. Uh, If children were born innocent, we wouldn't have to put hooks on cabinets. We wouldn't have to put the little things into electrical sockets. Uh, We wouldn't have to put, uh, you know, crib guards or gates in front of uh, the stairs. Uh, We wouldn't have to tell them uh, to not do things. But the problem is, is if you tell a child not to do something, what do they do? I was walking some preschoolers across the street in my last church, and there was a huge puddle. And I said, whatever you do, don't get in the puddle. I might as well have sent them an engraved invitation. (laughs) So what then does Jesus mean that you have to be like a child? Well, there are things that I think are indicative to a child that Jesus is getting at. One, he says it here, humility. To humble yourself. Because children are totally dependent upon parents. They can't survive apart from their parents. And they're unashamed by this. They they look to their parents to provide for them, to care for them. Uh, When a child is hurt or lost, what do they do? They cry for mama or daddy. They cry out for them knowing that the rescue is going to be coming. They realize their entire dependence upon their parent. And in that same vein, too, they expect their parent to give good gifts. That when they do cry out, that the parent will respond. I used to think it was incredibly selfish, but I've learned that actually it's probably a good thing when you come home from a trip, and you may remember this from your own childhood, or you may have a child yourself, or a grandchild, or a niece, or a nephew, or the child of a friend. Uh, When you walk through the door after a long trip, what's the first question they ask? What'd you bring me? I love you too. (laughs) Well, that sounds selfish, but actually, actually I think it gets at the point that they expect parents to give good gifts. Which one of you, if a child were to ask for an egg, would in turn give them a serpent? No, parents give good things to their children, and children simply expect it. And continuing in the same vein, three, children are actually able to receive a gift for what it is. That's something that's completely lost in adulthood, to actually receive a gift without any sense of reciprocation. I mean, think to those awkward moments around Christmas when someone shows up at a party and gives you a gift, and you don't have, to give, you don't have anything to give in return. And so you probably do what most good Christians do. You lie. You say... 
Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot yours at home, thinking what cheese log could I possibly re-gift that's still fresh enough to give back? Or you'll say, it's on, I'm so sorry, yours is on back order, but I'll get it to you as soon as possible. And then praise God for Amazon Prime, you can go home and you can get it with free two-day shipping. The worst feeling in the world is to be given a gift and to be left empty-handed. Our culture teaches that. We learn that in adulthood. A friend treats you to lunch, your job next time is to do what? To reciprocate and to treat them to the next lunch. How many of you have ever taken a child out to lunch or dinner and after a really nice meal, they've pushed back from the table and said, Mom, Dad, the next one's on me. It's never happened. They actually can receive a gift for what it is. Because gifts are things given without any sense that they will be returned. One of the hardest lessons that we've learned as parents is that we gave uh, one of my daughters, Lily, our oldest, when she was little, a gift from when we went on a vacation. It was a really nice gift. And about a day or two later, we found this gift sitting in the middle of the floor, ready to be trampled upon. And so we took it and we hid it. And Lily came up to Lauren, my wife and I, and said, well, where's that thing that you gave me? And we said, well, Lily, uh, because you didn't know how to take care of it, uh, we put it away and uh, you won't be able to have it back. And with tears streaming down her face, she looked at us and said, but you gave it to me. It was mine. It was a gift. Shoot! <laughs> She's right! She's right! It turned out that actually my wife and I had not given her a gift at all. If it was, it was a gift with strings attached. But children don't posture. They simply receive. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to humble yourself, understand that you are totally reliant upon your heavenly Father, that your heavenly Father will give good things to you and you ought to expect God to give those things to you. And that we ought to be able to receive God's grace for what it is, a gift. And he said, but woe be unto those who would lead one of these little ones astray. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now he's not simply talking about little children here. He's talking about those who believe in him. Because those who believe in him are his children. We are his little ones. And he says that there is a particular danger with those who have a teaching role within the life of the Christian body. And not simply that, but anybody who would take upon themselves the position of a teacher and would peddle falsehood. Anyone who would cause a child of God to be led astray, it would be better that they have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea. This catches my attention as one who is a pastor. And I am always struck in the ordination service in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer when the bishop, before he ordains the individual, says that you are to be a messenger 
a watchman and a steward of the Lord. A messenger, a watchman, and a steward of the Lord. It's almost Lord of the Rings-like language, isn't it? It sort of makes your blood get up a little bit. Uh, Understanding the great responsibility that a pastor has to care for God's flock. And yet so many have failed to live out that ordination vow. And even though they may not be ordained, others within the life of the church have failed to commend the faith that is within us and to teach falsely about our God. We see it in the cultural cultural accommodation rampant in the church today. I remember talking to one family member who said it was complete and utter foolishness to not live with someone before you married them. After all, you test drive a car. Why wouldn't you want to live with someone before you're married? And in fact, counseled many people in our family to do such things. Now you can throw Jesus out the window, and you may not know this, uh, but if you live with someone before you get married, you're actually 90% more likely to get divorced than anybody else. Christian or not. That's just the sociological fact of the matter. But moreover, it leads to a relationship that is ultimately 90% likely to end in destruction. Or those that would teach that the main object of our work is to get as wealthy as we possibly can, even at the expense of others. After all, We're not being completely dishonest, but just as dishonest as everybody else, and that's what we have to be in order to get by in the world. Or even what I hear from time to time from parents who I pastor, whose children want to go into full-time ministry, but they don't want their children to go into full-time ministry because they had higher aspirations, and they want them to have a certain quality of life. And surely if they were to go into full-time ministry, they would not be able to live the lifestyle that they had hoped for their children. These wolves in sheep's clothing are all around us. So what do we do? when We find those who had not only undermined God's word, but even worse, would tell us that Jesus really isn't who he says he is. That God is really not able. That his arm is too short to save. Well, Jesus tells us. He says this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This passage has done a a great deal, has caused uh, many a college man to think long and hard about life. And how often we've misread it. Most of us have had these conversations around this passage wondering, is Jesus really asking us to cut off our hands or to gouge out our eyes? No. What is he talking about? Well, one of the worst things that the editors of the Bible did is they put these little subheadings in, temptations to sin, the parable of the lost sheep. 
Who is the greatest? As if, okay, shut your mind down, we're going on to a new thought. But remember, this is one continuous teaching that Jesus is doing. And so not to take too much thunder from next week, let's read verse 10 together. See that you do not, well, let's just close up, with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking about individuals who would lead others astray. Better to have millstones thrown around their necks and thrown into the sea. Those who would lead God's children astray should be plucked out as eyes and should have their hands cut off as to get rid of them, to cast them off. He's actually talking, Jesus, about those who would lead God's children astray. They're the hands that cause sin. They're the eyes that cause offense. They're the ones who should be cut off, which is why he continues in the same line of teaching, and you'll get it next week, I'm sure, in verse 15. So if your brother causes you to sin, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So before you go hacking off limbs, go and talk to them first. That's what Jesus is talking about. We don't cut out those within the body willy-nilly. But we actually go to them and try to, let them, try to show them the error of their ways. To try to bring them back into the truth of God's word so that they can enjoy the fellowship of God's church. And so anybody who would lead a Christian astray is doing a dangerous thing because heresy or false teaching is deadly. It gives us a wrong idea about ourselves, but moreover, it gives us a wrong idea about who God is. And more often than not, false teaching in the church puts your spiritual walk completely back on yourself. Isn't that how it manifested itself in the Garden of Eden? When the serpent said, did God really say? No, no, no. He doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree because he knows that when you eat of the tree, you will become like him. And in the same way, false teaching today does the same exact thing. It makes you believe that you have power within yourself, inherent to you, to become like God. But instead, Jesus says, no, no. You need to ask yourself, is your relationship with God, is it like a little child to a father? Or is it a relationship like an adult child to a father? Because there is a great difference. Our relationships with our parents change over time. Uh, you no longer ask your parents, what did you bring me after the trip? If you're in your 30s and you still do, come talk to me later. We'll talk about it. And yet, if you're in your 30s and you go out to dinner with your parents, you still expect them to pay, don't you? It's the, man, that's a really awkward moment uh, when you get old enough where your dad looks at you and says, yeah, we'll split it. And you're like, wait a minute, what? 
Things obviously change as we get older. And yet our relationship with God never changes. We're always little children, and he's always our father. And we feel this acutely in life. Think of your own life right now. Do you interact with God as if you're an adult child out of the house? If so, you'll only call on God when you need him or when you feel obligated to talk with him. That's Sunday night. I guess I better call dad. It's not an ongoing relationship. and In many ways, as we get older, our parents aren't really familiar with what's going on in our life, only, only what we tell them. They're, they're, they're distant. Is that how we are with God? And let me tell you what that produces spiritually. A reckless and overburdened sense of responsibility for ourselves. How many of you are tired tonight? How many of you are exhausted so much that sometimes you go through the day and you think, I'm going crazy. I've absolutely had it. And I've lost it. Because you think that it's up to you. That you've forgotten that you have a heavenly father and all you have to do is yell, Abba, Daddy, save me, rescue me. I'm too little. Do you know your childishness? Or are you like one of my children who play dress up and you look foolish? trying to be the big grown-up adult when in fact we're still children to God? Are you tired of being responsible? Are you tired of being burdened by the things that belong to God and not you? Are you trying to do God's job? Not only in the world, but in your own life. Because false teaching puts it back on you. In fact, what false teaching does is it puts millstones around the necks of children. So many of us are struggling with things that actually are God's responsibility and God's work in our lives. We need to be reminded of what kind of God we serve. Again, not to take too much thunder from whoever is going to preach on the parable of the lost sheep. But let me read to you what kind of God we serve. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you know that he's the shepherd that leaves the ninety-nine to go after you who are trying as a sheep to make your way in, in your world? 
Do you know that he's the one who tackles you and throws you on his shoulders and brings you back into the safety of the sheep pen and he himself becomes the gate that he lies down so that no wolf can get to you? That he stands between you, the world, the sin, and the devil. That he's your great protector. That the Lord is your shepherd. He's yours. He's not far off. He longs to grab you up in his arms and to hold you and to protect you, to rescue you. He's yours and you, you are his. There's a great Scottish evangelist named MacDonald. Why wouldn't it be any other name? And he had a particular gift of working amongst children. And he was up in the highlands, and while he was there, he was doing a preaching mission, and he had the children from the parish brought in, and he preached to them. This is in the latter part of the 19th century. And he preached to them from the 23rd Psalm, and he said, The Lord is my shepherd. And he said, Children, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold out your hands and know the Lord is my shepherd. I want your fingers to represent those words, the Lord is my shepherd. I want you to know that he is the Lord. He is the only one, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the only one, the only name given under heaven and earth under, by which men might be saved. And he's the Lord. He's all-powerful. He longs to be a part of your life and to govern you and to be with you and to lead you all the days of your life. He is, he's presently your Lord. There's never a moment where his eye is off of you. He's the one who leads the 99 to pursue after you. And he's my, he's yours. And he said, in this particular finger is where I wear my wedding band. And in very much the same way as a, as a husband and wife come together in that beautiful image of marriage that represents God's great love for his church, I want you to take hold of that finger any time that you doubt that he is your shepherd and know that the Lord is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. He leads you and guides you. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be near you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. MacDonald left to go to the south of England to continue his preaching missions. And while he was there, a letter came to him saying, a great storm, a snowstorm has struck uh, the north of Scotland. And uh, one child in particular has been lost in the snowdrifts. And we're looking for him. And uh, it's been a very terrible time. And we wonder, if you have time in your schedule, would you come back to minister to us in the midst of this awful time. And while he was taking the train back up to the uh, north of Scotland in the Highlands, uh, they found the little child frozen in a snowbank. And do you know when they found that little child what he was doing? He was holding his ring finger. The Lord is my shepherd. How do you stand before God? As a child? Or maybe a rebellious adolescent? Or even accomplished adult? That Jesus says, if you want to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, if you want to enter into a living relationship with the living God, we must come to him as children, for that is what we are. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.